evening. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of the Conservative Coalition for Climate Solutions, or C3 Solutions. And uh, we're here for the Right Voices interview series, where we interview leading conservative voices, policymakers, leaders of other groups, young leaders, older leaders. And tonight, I'm thrilled to have my good friend, Benji Backer, uh, who's the president of ACC. And uh, Benji really needs no introduction, but I'll, I'll let him introduce himself anyway. And, and Benji, I have to say, congratulations again. You were recently named one of the 40 under 40. Was it for Fortune or Forbes? Uh, for Fortune. And uh, they do the 30 under 30 list. And Danny and I were on that in 2019. So uh, all the the F-named lists, Fortune, Forbes, and uh, I don't know. So you made them all. Well... You- I don't know about that, but uh, it was definitely an honor. And uh, thank you for mentioning that. I don't know if I deserve to be on that list, but it really shows what our organization's been able to accomplish. And I guess the power of, of young people. So it was yeah, awesome. impressive. Well, Benji, I think, you know, Drew, Drew Bond and I, Drew is the co-founder of, of C3 Solutions. He was Ed Fulmer's chief of staff at Heritage. And I'm not going to say how old Drew is, but, but Drew and I were joking that we're going to do something called 65 under 65. Rick Santorum would be included in that just because we want to honor people who are making great contributions to the space. So Benji, I'd like to announce that you are one of our finalists for the C3 Solutions 65 under 65. And if you continue the great work you're doing, I think there's a very good chance both you and Danielle will be included in our <laughs> next year. Well, I think I think there should be a uh, 40 over 40. I mean, why isn't there a uh, know. you know why isn't there a focus on uh, all the amazing older leaders who are working on these issues? Uh, I was actually mentioning in an interview right. earlier today that what's really cool about this space, I think the, in, the environment and climate space, is that the younger and older leaders are really piggybacking off of each other because you know people like you and others have been huge mentors to me from. Uh, you know, a life and professional standpoint. And then, you know, we're coming in with new ideas and, and innovative ways of doing things. And then we're able to share notes and, and learn from each other. And it's really, really helpful. I don't see that on other issues. I, I think it's a really unique thing about this one. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's spectacular. The, you know, there's an inter- intergenerational, I think, movement happening where, you know, I'm, I'm from Generation X. And, you know, my joke is I think Generation X, we're not the greatest generation. We're not the boomers. But there's a case to be made that we may be the coolest generation because we created the internet. We have 80s music. So I think that's part of our contribution to this. So Absolutely. So we're, we're, and, but you've also seen people. this issue evolve and you have a lot of life left and you know that this is an important issue, but yet you've seen a lot more of this issue uh, and other issues. And so, yeah, I definitely think there's a, a very unique overlap there. So, Benji, some of the things I want to talk about is, you know, we had a great time uh, depending on how you define great, but it was, we had, we had a very spirited debate where you and I were debate partners in, in, uh, uh, South Dakota at Freedom Fest. And the, the underlying question I kind of want to put out there, put on the table is, you know, when conservatives talk about climate, there's still so much of a default reaction. This is less so than it was a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. There's a sense of what I call the record scratch, where people scratch their heads. Well, if you put conservative and climate together, isn't that a contradiction? And why don't you talk about how how you you have navigated that? How when you talk to people, when you talk to conservatives, you, there there is some suspicion and skepticism. And uh, how do you address that? 
Yeah, well, look, before I even get into my conservative credentials, I want to say this is an issue where there's a lot of skepticism for good reason. I mean, the left has, the political left has taken this issue and run with it from a political perspective. And so to a lot of conservatives, it's come across as this isn't even a real issue. This is just a way for the left to get more power, to win elections, to hammer on conservatives and to, you know, basically implement their own policies on things that don't have to do with the environment. And so that totally makes sense. And I think what's really important to note, though, is that just because that's the way that the left has positioned it doesn't mean that the issue itself that there are maybe hijacking doesn't exist. Uh, And I think for conservatives, we have to realize that running the other way is maybe not the best option, that maybe the best option is running the other way in terms of policy and approach, but not running the other way in terms of what the actual issues are. And, you know, just because you don't like the left's version of healthcare doesn't mean that there's no healthcare issue, right? Or any other issue you can apply that to. And so, as a conservative, I mean, a lot of people are like, oh, you're 23. How can you be a lifelong conservative? I started when I was 10 years old and I was campaigning and door knocking and making phone calls for political candidates when I was 10. Scott Walker, uh, Ron Johnson. I grew up in Wisconsin, obviously, if you couldn't tell by uh, my wardrobe and my uh, political allies from childhood. But uh, yeah, this, I have been literally dedicated, I've literally dedicated my entire life to conservative politics up until this point. And I realized that just because the left had taken this issue didn't mean that conservatives couldn't engage and that we couldn't do it throughout our own policies and our own values. And that's where I think we need to work towards is is accepting that these issues are real, but that there are free market or market-based and limited government ways that are not antithetical to conservative values to solve the problem. And even if you don't think it's a problem, you have to realize that younger generations care about it enough where it's not going away. I care about it enough. It's not going to go away. So the answer is either letting one side dictate what happens on it or standing up for our own values and also solving it at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. One of the points I made in, in, in at our Freedom Fest discussion was, you know, we, there's a lot of focus in the debate, and rightly so, about ecological tipping points. So it's the question, well, how, what is the risk level? And really, there's the way I, th- I think of it is risk assessment like you would if you're buying insurance for your house. It doesn't have to be a really charged uh, conversation. So the risk may be one in a thousand of something bad happening. It could be one in 10. I don't think it's the world's going to end in 10 years. That's not what, quote, the science says. Right. But to me, it's much riskier to not acknowledge risk than to acknowledge risk. And whether we want to admit it or not as conservatives, we are very, very close to a political tipping point. I mean, look at what's happening right now in Congress, where there's a fight about whether we'll have you know, a trillion dollar infrastructure plan, which is very aggressive, or that plus $3.5 trillion and a whole lot of stuff that has absolutely nothing to do with climate. So I'm sorry, but you can, you can make a good argument for universal preschool, but what is the carbon benefit of universal preschool? I mean, there's no, the science is not telling us we need to expand government run healthcare. The science is not telling us we have to have a big expansion of federal central power. And, and so the far left is way off base, but if we don't engage in this issue, we're effectively seeding that ground. And, and this is something, you know, I I lived through in with uh, Senator Tom Coburn's office where we saw 
the 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 left wanting to do Hillary Care 2.0, which became Obamacare. And there was a fight within the Republican conference in the Senate of do we put forward our, our alternative or do we just simply criticize whatever the Democrats come up with? And sadly, the side that just wanted to play the short-term political game, they beat up on Obamacare and and look, they were successful, at least temporarily, but in 2017, when we had the majority and the authority to actually push through our vision, there was not enough momentum because there wasn't the time and, and energy invested in articulating understanding an alternative. So that's what you and I, and I give you enormous credit because you know I have the benefit of having lived through that and seeing what happens. And you've wisely looked ahead and thought, you know, we don't want to get in that same position uh, 10 or 15 years from now in, in this issue area. Well, it's exactly right. And and we're about to to hit that point. And I think the reason why people are worried about Obamacare is because they want better health care. And if they are only presented with one option that one side proposes, then slowly but surely more and more people are going to fall in line with that. And yeah, you can raise you can raise a quick buck or win a win a short term election by going after that. But if there's no substance behind your attack, then you are delaying uh, your opportunity to have a seat at the table to the point where at some point you lose the seat. And we're at the point where even with the progress we've made, we're close to losing that seat at the table uh, as conservatives. And look, I mean, why people want action on climate change overall across the globe is not because they want big government. It's because they want a cleaner, healthier planet. And if they are presented with only one option with science telling us that we should be doing something to lower our our carbon impact, then people are going to be drawn to that option. And if they're drawn to that option and the options, the green new deal, or even Biden's climate plan, uh, we won't see the climate impact that we need, but we also are going to hamstring our economy and politically we're going to hamstring ourselves. And so politically, we're losing, economically, we're losing, and most important to me, environmentally, we're losing. And that's the risk that conservatives are taking right now by trying to hammer, you know, rightfully so, some of these radical ideas, but then not saying, I also understand why people are worried about it, and I want to tackle it in a different way that is actually productive and cost-effective and good for the economy and good for communities that need to be uh, not left behind. And right now, it's not happening like that fast enough. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the solutions for a minute because, again, what back to the question I asked at, at the beginning is when people like you and I talk about conservatism and climate, there is skepticism, and and as you said, for good reasons that there. The alarmism is real, the sort of catastrophic rhetoric that's not scientific. It doesn't mean there's not a real risk, but the world is not going to end, end in 10 years necessarily, or it's not. And but we Definitely. have to articulate we have to articulate what we're for. And, but no, but on that point, in all seriousness, is that there's a big difference between when I think about risk, I think the, the planet will survive what we do to it. We may not. In other words, there may be so much disruption in the way we respond to this issue, that we could make it much, much worse than it might be otherwise. So that's a really important point that gets lost in this. And so I think the solution is what we call economic freedom. And we did, as, as you know, Nick Loris, who is the uh, at the Heritage Foundation, is our VP of public policy. The bottom line conclusion is free, freer economies with less government property rights are twice as clean as less free economies. So, so, what the science says, what the economics says, very 
plainly and clearly is that we're cleansed by capitalism. So what does that look like? It doesn't look like, you know, if I were to ask you, what is the biggest problem in American society? Is it overtaxation or overspending? I would say it's, uh, it's or undertaxation rather. Oh, I would say it's overspending and... uh, under uh, undertaxation or overspending. Yeah, I mean we're we're overspending uh, by far, and we're not you know investing in our innovation or technology. And to your point, the thing is, is that in the United States we can have this conversation on Facebook Live because we live in a fairly capitalist society where you know we've been able to innovate our way to the point where we think about things like climate change and the environment because we're not worried. Well, you know, by and large, we're not as worried about putting food on our tables. We're more worried about societal problems, social justice, really important issues that are different than those who are in developing countries that are literally just trying to survive. This is one of those issues. And if you believe in the science, as I do, that we need to you know, significantly lower our carbon footprint, you have to make it economical. And there's no amount that the government can spend to do that we, because it's a global issue. And if India and China and Africa and South America don't think that it's cost effective to be pro-environment, they aren't going to be. No matter how much we spend in America and no matter how much the EU spends in other places that are developed. And so that's what capitalism has the power to do, to innovate the technology to a point where it is cost effective to have nuclear or solar or wind, or it is cost effective to be a sustainable farmer, or it is cost effective to drive an electric car or whatever the solution is, it has to be cost effective. And the lowest income people on this planet at least have to be able to think about it as an option that is beneficial for them. Um, And if it's not, then it won't work. And only capitalism can do that. Yeah. And also we have to we can we can do that and defend human rights at the same time. So we did an op-ed that The Washington Times published. And in response to uh, some some progressive groups were encouraging the Biden administration to effectively not hold China accountable on human rights in order to persuade them to be constructive on climate change. And and as we as we noted, that's you can do you have to do both. You can you can hold China accountable. You can uphold human rights. And and at the same time. And actually makes it easier to tackle this issue because you're promoting economic freedom. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And the people in China, uh, outside of the government, love love their environment. And there's a lot of beauty in China. And right now we're allowing uh, not only the people, but the environment to be destroyed in China. And that's having uh, massive implications across the world. We are basically giving up our economic uh star power on climate and the environment to them while they don't care at all about the environment or the people who are working uh, for the industries that they are taking over. And the things go hand in hand. A a flourishing society where people believe in each other and love nature and can work together to solve problems, and they all have a voice in it through voting and through their own personal dollar – that's the best recipe for environmental success, not what China's doing. And when liberal groups go and, and, and praise China, it, it really exposes them for not caring about the climate at all. They care about posturing to parts of the world or specific funders or whatever to get ahead. And look, I like you, I care about the climate and I care about the environment. And if if we are sucking up to China, you don't care about the environment and you don't care about the climate and you don't care about human rights. 
And that doesn't mean that we just have to go after China all day and that the United States shouldn't do anything. That's absolutely not what it means. But what it means is that you you can do both. You can take action and hold China accountable. And you can hold China accountable on the environment and human rights um, because they do go hand in hand. And the United States is improving its human rights record as it's improving its environmental record. China is decreasing its environmental record as it's decreasing its human rights record. Goes hand in hand, the data shows it, and those aren't the only two examples. Yeah. So one, Benji, one thing you mentioned too is communities and what people are doing and can do. Uh, talk a little bit about natural solutions. I mean, that's a, that's been a, a, you've shown great leadership in that area. Describe a little of what that means and, and how, how we, can, we can advance uh, natural solutions. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I really love natural solutions because it puts the environment back into environmentalism again. Uh, and that's something I think we need to do. Uh, we all love the outdoors, whether that's our local park or uh, a hike that we went on growing up or, or, or fishing uh, on the lake. And so there's there's really something special about natural solutions. What natural solutions is, is a focus on climate solutions that relate to nature. And that means planting more trees, restoring wetlands, uh, restoring coral reefs. All those things reduce carbon emissions. And we kind of forget about third grade science class sometimes when we're talking about climate change and forget that those sorts of things really are the reason that we can suck up CO2. And that, yes, you know, the energy conversation and the electric vehicle conversation all are very important. But we can return to nature to solve climate change. And it won't do it all itself, but it's a huge huge step and it can reduce up to 37% of CO2 emissions across the world. That's a huge number of CO2 emissions that we don't have the opportunity to decrease yet through other ways uh, without a lot more technological innovation. So we've been focusing on something called Rooted in America, which is basically taking uh, the conservation roots, the environmental roots of the United States, returning to that to build communities in different parts of the country who have different natural landscapes and reducing emissions through those natural landscapes. And whether you're a farmer or a rancher or a forester or just somebody who lives in in regular America, I grew up in Wisconsin, uh, it's a huge opportunity to be at the table. um, And it's the best way for us to do something in the short term. And there's the most political consensus around it and it's the most cost effective. That's fantastic. Yeah. And one of the points I made in an op-ed I did with, with Danielle on the issue of spending is that if, if we just took a fraction, a tiny fraction of what we waste in the federal government, you know, for, we, we use the example of the equipment we left behind in Afghanistan. If we lowball that number, and I think of 24 billion, that could, using the more efficient methods of tree planting, could have planted 100 billion trees. So we're talking about the and, and again that doesn't it doesn't even have to be a federal program it can be something neighbors do with them, with each other right. in the context of, of civil society if states want to get involved great uh, but but I, I just commend you for elevating and lifting those solutions up that's really important well thank so, you I think I think one of the things that it hits on is just as human rights have to do with the environment so do communities and. When you're talking about climate change and you make it about this far off scientific global issue that is melting ice caps, only a certain percentage of people are going to care. But when you make it about planting trees in your local neighborhood and, and creating a community garden that reduces emissions and working with your local farmer uh, to have them get compensated for lowering emissions on their property, those sorts of things, that's a winning strategy because you're building community and you're building a connection to the environment and you're lowering uh, emissions at the same time. 
this conversation has become so negative. Climate change has become so negative and hateful and, and visceral that people don't want to engage in it anymore. And that's really harmful. And natural solutions, uh, fighting for climate, natural solutions is a way to get out of that. Well, and, and I, I'm sitting here on 62 acres. So as I look over my computer screen, I'm looking over my field and I just planted 1,175 trees. And it was it was a combination. I'm a, you know one of the most ardent fiscal conservatives around that I work with the state at the state of Maryland to help plant and different civic groups. So it was sort of an all of the above strategy, but. And you've but, done more than right. so many people who say that, you know, it's a green new deal or bust. I mean, you know, we have this conversation where it's, if it's not good enough, then it's not worth exploring. And those people are pushing towards basically a dead end. Well, you just because you love nature and you love your backyard and you want to create a space for the next generation and also improve the environment, you've planted over a thousand trees. And that is amazing. And that's what returning to conservation roots is. You're putting these people like you who are passionate about the environment and saying, hey, look, you deserve a voice in this. And let's put you at the forefront of this conversation because you know how to take care of your environment best. And in fact, if you were equipped with the resources, you would be there 24 hours a day ready to fight for the climate. Uh, The groups on the left aren't doing that. And that's preventing climate action. And it's also leaving a lot of important voices behind. Uh, People like you would be seen as, oh, that's cool, but that's just not good enough. Well, what if a hundred people in a couple months like you did that? That's a huge difference. And you start adding those things up and you're starting to make a big dent. Well, thank you. Well, you're, you're welcome. I need to have you come out and ACC can, can see what we've done. I, d- I need to go see those a thousand, do a thousand plus trees. Uh, that is that is awesome. So in just a couple of months, we've got left, Benji. Talk, talk to me about uh, the climate conference COP is what we call it in, in Scotland coming up. So C3 Solutions is going to be there. ACC, tell us a little bit about what you have in store and and and, and give us the big picture of why bother going to this left-wing you know, climate conference. Yeah, well, first of all, COP, uh, to most people, doesn't even make any sense. What is COP? So COP is uh, not a police officer. Well, it can be, but it's not uh, in this instance. Uh, it is an event in uh, Glasgow, uh, Scotland this year, uh, but it's an annual event focused on basically uh, putting together a, a consensus globally as their goal on climate change policy. And that's where the Paris Agreement and other conversations have largely stemmed from. Um, They're doing that again this year in a very limited fashion due to COVID. And for the past few years of COP, there has not been a conservative presence at all, to your point. And similar to here in the United States, while that can be very frustrating to see the types of policies they've been promoting and kind of the globalist nature of it. Um, when you're not at the table and you're not listening and you're not, you know, having a conversation, you're losing because you're not there. And for us, conservatives have a lot of really good ideas to make, you know, climate change a problem with a global solution that doesn't hamper different countries unfairly or different economies unfairly uh, or different industries unfairly. And by being there and holding this summit, which we're going to do uh, alongside COP, we're 
allowing conservatives from multiple different countries to have their voice heard. And while it's not nearly good enough, or, you know, we wish it was, you know, a 50-50 conference where there were, you know, 50% right of center voices and 50% left of center, it's a start. And, you know, to partner with C3 Solutions and uh, the British Conservation Alliance and all these different international organizations, we're going to be able to do something no one has done before, which is really give conservatives globally a voice to the point that we were trying to make uh, earlier about nationally conservatives needed to engage. It's the same thing globally. And this is a huge opportunity for us. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. It's going to be, uh, we're going to have a couple of days worth of programming. Our policy director, Chris Barnard, has worked really hard on it with Quill. Um, and I think that the lineup is going to be fantastic. We're going to have international leaders uh, from numerous different countries speaking on, uh, on climate change and conservatism and trying to figure out how we can make COP a more balanced, nuanced, and uh, more pro-conservative place to be going forward. Yeah, well, we're thrilled to partner with you, and uh, we're going to be doing an event on economic freedom, promoting Nick Loris's paper. Again, free economies are clean economies, and that message just has not broken through, partly because we just haven't made the case. Again, that's, you know, as I often say, is this is not an issue we should run from. It's an issue we should run toward, because the answers are in all the all the beliefs that we hold dear as conservatives, less government, more freedom, a stronger civil society. So, so thrilled to, to partner with you, Benji. And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be fantastic. And, and we're thrilled to partner with you because as you know, that your, your philosophy of, of free economies and, and fighting climate change at the same time, that's a very compelling message here in the United States, but it's even more compelling globally because it shows that a global issue like climate change can be tackled in a similar way. Whereas like a green new deal that's not going to work in another country. A freer economy, though, could work in another country, and it would work in another country. And so when you're looking at a global approach on climate change, which we all should be if we're, if we're taking it seriously, this free economies uh, you know, approach is the best one. And the fact that you're bringing it to COP is, is really exciting. Well, we're looking forward to it. So, well, Benji, thanks so much for for taking the time to to be with us again. I'm John Hart, the co-founder of C3 Solutions and executive editor of our news magazine, C3. You can see this uh, video in our Right Voices series. And Benji, thank you again so much and uh, look forward to to doing many, many projects with you in the years to come. Well, very grateful for your uh, and our partnership. And thanks for having me on tonight and many more years of uh, fighting the good fight.